welcome to Abundant Life Church. It is so great to be with you. Uh, to those in the room with me, to those who are watching or listening online or through a podcast, so glad that you are a part of this with us as well. Uh, if you're new uh, with us, my name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are a church about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Thrilled that you are a part of this with us. And before we begin, I wanna tell you something that's happening next week. Uh, we're gonna take a break in our series, and we're gonna have what we're calling Summit Weekend. And it's the first chance you're gonna have to sign up for this year's Global Leadership Summit. It's an event we host in August. We began it last year. Uh, but we have one of the speakers from the event that's going to be at our church giving the message next weekend. Her name is Danielle Strickland. And if you were at last year's summit with us, you heard her speak on that stage. Uh, this was, again, to a global audience. They invited her back. She's gonna do this year again. And in between the two Global Leadership Summits, she's speaking at Abundant Life. Anybody, anybody excited about that? Uh, she does a few other things too in between that year. But uh, really that's like the, the cool part for me. Uh, she's an incredible communicator. Like I'm envious of the way God has wired her to communicate. Uh, you guys are gonna be in for a treat next week. And so uh, you wanna come hear her, bring a friend. But number two, uh, you can sign up for the summit. At the lowest price it's gonna be. The closer it gets to the event, the more that price goes up. So $79, you can sign up. It's gonna be happening in August. Two days of learning and growing and being, uh, just being teachable together and going, God, what do you wanna challenge us with? That was incredible last summer and we're gonna invite you to experience it with us again. Beginning next week, you can sign up for that. So I wanna plant that seed with you. Today, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. If you've got a physical analog Bible, go ahead and get that out. If you've got a Bible app, I encourage you to get that out as well. Uh, we're going to be looking at the second of our set of stories. We're looking at three stories that are found in Luke 15 and Luke 16. All of them are tied together. Uh, this is a series we've been in called Brothers, Managers, and Dead People. And lastly, we talked about brothers. Today, we're gonna talk about managers. And then two weeks after our summit weekend, we'll get to dead people. And I encourage you to get out week two there and you can take notes on things that stand out to you or uh, things that you're just going, wow, I gotta write that down and, and I gotta process that a little bit with God. I'd encourage you to do that. But today we're gonna look at a story that is one of the most confusing things Jesus ever said. And uh, I would suspect that even if you've grown up in church, you've probably never heard this story preached uh, because most of us as preachers, and I can certainly be guilty of this, we preach the passages we like. And there's a lot of the Bible, and there's only 52 weeks, and so you gotta pick what you're gonna preach. And stories like this are a little bit too confusing for most of us. I've never preached on this before. Uh, when I put this into our series, I went, wow, I'm gonna have my work cut out for me that week. And it has been an incredible week of study as I have explored this passage. I'm so excited to share with you things that God has been teaching me this week as I've understood this better. And uh, we're gonna get into it together. It's an incredible story, but it's a weird one. And so we'll see what Jesus is saying here or what I think he's saying. So Luke chapter 16, we're gonna begin reading in verse one. Like we did last week, just imagine you're gathered around Jesus the storyteller. He's going to make up a story to communicate an incredible truth, and we're gonna learn uh, about ourselves in this story today. Luke 16, verse one. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. 
Now, this is the conversation you never wanna happen. You have mishandled something, uh, you have done something wrong, and now you have to give an account for it. You're gonna go in and meet with your boss. And some of you, you know what this feels like and you realize how much is riding on this. As I was thinking about this story, it reminded me of something from when I was a kid. Uh, I remember that, you know, when I was in middle school, I was trying to find myself, you know, as most of us are in middle school. Um, But what was unique about that for me is that uh, my dad had previously been the student pastor of our church. It was about 6,000 people at our church, it's a big church. And, and so my dad was a student pastor and that was really cool. But about the time I was in middle school, he became the lead pastor. And now I had like 6,000 people every weekend staring at me and watching me and judging me and having all their views of what I should be. And, and as a middle schooler, that was a lot to process. And so I didn't ever have like the preacher's kid rebellion, uh, but I had a few seasons that were, you know, I just had to kind of grow into them and figure out who am I. And, and it manifested itself in some weird ways. For example, one year at Halloween, our church did this event where uh, we had a Halloween party, uh, you know, in, in lieu of everyone going trick-or-treating. And if you know my stance on this today, at ALC, we don't have any events on Halloween. We encourage you guys to go be in the community. Uh, but back then, this was like the safe haven away from all the scary people outside. We gathered as a church, you know? And so there's a church a Halloween event. And my friends and I were like, hey, this is kind of for kids, but we're in middle school. Let's go to it, but let's dress up. I don't know what you envision a middle school version of me would dress up as, um, but anybody remember the band Kiss? <laughs> Most of us are too young for that, myself included, but I remember Kiss was a big deal, and in case you don't know what Kiss looks like, I thought, these will make awesome, awesome costumes. And so here's the deal, I didn't even grow up, this is before me, I didn't grow up with Kiss, I didn't listen to the music, I just knew of these guys and thought, this will really turn some heads at the church carnival. And so as a middle schooler, this, this sounded like a really good decision to me. And so I dressed up as the guy with the star. I think his name's Paul. I don't even know their music. I don't know them. But I thought, let's go and do this. So me and three of my friends, we all dressed up as Kiss. And they were really good costumes. I just got to tell you that. Really good. And you have to remember that because we show up to the church carnival. And it's, a, it's an open campus. You can walk anywhere. But if you wanted to play any of the games or get the food or whatever, you had to have these tickets. And so we line up to, at the little table and we're in line to get these in, you know, full kiss costumes. And, and so we get there and it was a number of our church admins that were on staff that were selling the tickets for the event. And so we get up there and uh, they look at us and one of the admins says, oh, I'm sorry, this, this event isn't for you. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, excuse me? Uh, and I'm like, what, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, sorry, this, this is a kid's event. It's not really for you. We're, we're sorry, guys. We can't sell you a ticket. Now, I didn't think much about this. I'm like, all right, we'll just walk around. We won't play any of the games. We'll just do whatever. So we're like, all right, no problem. So we just go and we walk around. Well, I find out later that the lady sitting next to the lady that told us that leaned over and said, do you know who that is? And she's like, no. And she goes, that's our lead pastor's son. And she goes, oh my goodness, what have I done? And she goes, you just told the lead pastor's son he can't come to the church carnival. And she's like, I didn't recognize him. He was in costume. And, and she's like, oh, I, that was a bold move. You know, and she's like, oh no. So she's envision, envisioning this, like I'm gonna have to give an account for why I told him his son can't have a ticket to the carnival. So she starts panicking. She's so worried about this. And so she's like, I gotta go find his dad and apologize and like tell him before he hears it from anyone else that this is what happened. So she was walking around, she finally finds my dad, and she's like, I am so sorry, I have done something so wrong, I need to apologize and own it. And my dad's like, what happened, what did you do? And she's like, "Um, you know, 
as you know, your, your son is here. I don't know if you know that he dressed up, but he's like, yeah, I'm aware. And, and she's like, okay, um, I didn't recognize him, and I, I, I told him he couldn't have a ticket. She goes, I am so sorry. And my dad looked at her without skipping a beat and said, I wouldn't have sold him a ticket either. <laughs> Which is why I have some daddy issues that I'm still working through as an adult today. And I remember that because I remember she was so paranoid, and then it was like, oh, no big deal, like we're, we're totally fine. Um, all because of that reaction. And, and we all have conversations like that where you know, depending on how this conversation plays out, a lot is riding on this. And the manager knows, if this conversation goes bad, my, my future is in jeopardy. And so he has got to come up with a creative solution to this problem. He has mishandled, he has messed up, and now he's gotta make it right. And so that is the context of this. Now, Jesus tells us that he had wasted the owner's property. This is the interesting word. In Greek, it's the same word as he used last week for the younger brother who squandered his property, his inheritance. And so in both of these examples, you have the same word being used of someone who wastes or squanders what has been given to them. And you're beginning to see a theme in these three stories of, of what happens when we don't handle what we have been given, we don't handle it well. This guy had wasted what he had. And now last week I asked a question and this question could easily apply to this week as well. The question I asked last week is when was the last time you asked God what you should do with his stuff? And I asked this question last week and here's the reality. You could ask this question this week of this manager and if he had asked this question, he would not have ended up in the situation that he ended up in. He would not have had this conversation had he been thinking through how do I manage well what I have been entrusted with. But instead he decided I can do whatever I want with it and now he has to give an account. So what's he gonna do? Well, check out what he does in verse three. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So we called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The master told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. And then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Now, this is an interesting response. You're going, okay, I didn't see that coming. What's going on here? Now, depending on which version you're reading out of, the numbers may look different. The ratios are usually the same. And so uh, this is the NIV that I just read out of, but most other versions simplify these numbers. So let's go with the simplified numbers. So you have 100 gallons of oil in most of your versions. 100 gallons of oil, subtract 50, you're left with 50 gallons of oil, okay? Second example is 100 bushels of wheat, subtract 20, and you get 80, now you might be wondering, why these numbers? Why are we starting at 100 and then you're taking away 50, then you're taking away 20? What is significant about these numbers? And, and you're gonna find that out in a moment. But these are significant numbers. Now if you don't know how this story is gonna end, and if you were listening to Jesus as he told it, you would be thinking, oh man, this manager is in for it. I mean, if it was gonna be bad before, after what he has just done, oh, this conversation is not gonna go well. I cannot believe what he just did. Then you get to the most confusing thing that Jesus said in the story. Verse eight, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. To which we go, what? Jesus, your story is broken, that makes no sense. It says this, for the people of this world 
are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. He's talking about Gentiles and Jews. People of the light in this context are the Jews. Uh, they, they are not as good as the Gentiles when it comes to this. And they're going, what is he talking about? He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed in to eternal dwellings. Now let's just pray, close the message here, and let's all go home confused. Because most of us, we read this and we're like, I'm not sure what to make out of this story. It seems kind of like a jacked up story that Jesus told, and we're supposed to all you know, have some great takeaway from it, but it's strange. Well, let's begin to understand what's going on here. Why is Jesus telling this story? Now let's begin by explaining. There's a huge difference between these two ideas. Idea number one. I commend the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. Okay, that's one option. Or option two, I commend the clever manager because he acted dishonestly. Now, you have to think about which one you're applying here because that matters. The first one is what's actually being said. The manager is already dishonest. But what he's being commended for is that he acted cleverly. It's not that all of a sudden he became dishonest and now he's getting applauded for it. He was already dishonest, but now he's doing something clever despite what he had already done. That's an important detail to note. So how do we explain this passage? Well, the understanding that we need to have is something that the Jews in this time would, would have all understood, but that we don't understand because it's not part of our culture. So Jesus is telling this to a Jewish audience who would have understood how the Jewish culture played out in that day. Now, we don't. What, what part of their culture are we missing? Well, there is a, a law, if you were Jewish in those days, that you could not loan money to another Jew and charge them interest. So just think about that. You, you were forbidden from doing this. So if I loaned you money in any type of capacity, I could not profit on the money if you were Jewish and I was Jewish. And so this was the rule. And this was very clear. If you go to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, what's called the Hebrew Bible, and figure out how did this work for them, you can see this in a variety of ways. Let me show you a few examples. Exodus 22. If you lend money, to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal, charge no interest. If you're lending money, do not think of it like a business deal. You think of it as a relational deal. You do not charge them interest on that money. Leviticus 25. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them. You're loaning money, you, you cannot profit off this money. Deuteronomy 23. Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or on food or on anything else that may earn interest. You, you getting the idea here? This is very clear. You in no way can do this. I want you to imagine, if you're a Jew in that time, how hard that would be. Maybe you think, oh, that's no, that's no big deal. I, I could handle that. Okay, imagine that I contextualize it for us. As an American, if you loan to other Americans, you're not allowed to charge interest. How does your portfolio look now? Some of you are like, whoa, that would really mess things up, right? Because we're so used to charging interest. And so again, maybe not on like someone you know, you're thinking, I wouldn't charge them interest, but think about your retirement accounts and your stock portfolios and all these other things that you have that you are getting interest on, on bank accounts, right? Anything you're getting interest on, if there are other Americans involved, you're not allowed to take interest. You can make no profit on any of those. How would that feel? Well, for many of you, you'd be like, wow, I don't, I don't know if I could do that. That would be a huge deal. Maybe that's how you have made the money that you've made. Well, you would react to that, and so did the ancient, 
the ancient Israelites. They had the same type of reaction going, God, really? Like, really, this is your regulation on us? And so they began to push on this and, and interpret it their own way. They began to go, you know what? That's not really the intent behind it. The intent is to protect like the marginalized among us and someone in need. And so if it's a mutually beneficial loan, then it's okay to charge interest as long as you do it discreetly. So as time went on, they disobeyed these regulations, but they did it discreetly and they did it on their terms on how they were going to explain what they were doing. So here's how they did it, and this is pretty clever. They would say, all right, let's say someone is gonna borrow 80 gallons of oil, okay? Well, I can't charge you interest as time goes on at the end of that, so what I'll do is I'll add 20 gallons of interest up front, okay? So when you actually loan the amount, you put that into the beginning, and then the actual loan becomes 100 gallons. And so when someone would take the loan and they would repay the loan, the amount would be exactly the same. It would look like there was no interest built in. But all they did was they put the interest math up front, figured out how long was the loan gonna be for, how much would we charge it, buried it inside the loan, and that's how they figured out we have gamed the system, we have figured this out. And oftentimes managers would do this on behalf of their owners. They would just handle this kind of account for them. And so they would build in all these interest payments into the loan so someone knows they only got 80 gallons out of the loan, but the loan amount was for 100. They have to pay 100 back. It looks like there's no interest. And then Jesus tells this story. And what's happening in this story is that the manager is going back to each of these uh, debtors and he's removing the interest. This is why this is brilliant. He's going back, he's going, look, what was your loan for? And they're like, oh, it was for 100. And he goes, well, I know 20 of that was interest. So to take away 20 of it, you now have 80. Now, why this is brilliant is he has not taken anything from his owner. Because his owner didn't actually loan these amounts, it was interest. And he's you know, gotten all these debtors to be in his favor now because he removed the interest that they were paying and now their deal is way better than they would have been able to get otherwise. And here's the brilliance in this. There's no way for the owner to call him out on this. Because if the owner said, whoa, 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 how dare you do that? He would have to acknowledge there was interest built in to his loans. And so he can't do that. He's got to save face. So the only option he has is to commend the dishonest manager for acting cleverly and saying, wow, that was a good solution to that problem. You made them happy. You didn't steal anything from me, but you had found a way to resolve that. And after that setting, then Jesus explains it with this. Oh, hold on. Let me, let me uh, uh, something that the New Testament scholar Leon Morris said. This helps make sense. The manager was now seen as conforming to the law of God and the owner as applauding this. Both were acting decisively in a difficult situation. So both of them had figured out this is the only course of action we have, but now they had rectified it. Before they were acting dishonestly, now they had done what they should have done all along, that they have come to terms with it. Then Jesus says this in verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? That is a profound question. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, 
or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, we often hear that verse preached, but we hear it out of context, away from the story we just heard, and we go, well, yeah, well, what's it? of course you can't. But understand, Jesus is saying this to people who were claiming that they were serving God, but they were disobeying God when it came to their money because really they wanted to find out how can we make our money do what we want it to do and claim that we're still following God. They thought they had done both. Jesus is exposing this and saying, no, you're serving money. You're claiming you serve God, but in what you're actually doing, you are serving money. You cannot do both. It says the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, who loved money, interesting note that Luke points out, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. That's such a great word. You can just picture that. Sneering at listening to him tell the story going, ugh, this is about us. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. How do we explain this? How do we understand this? So I think the logic here is that it, 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 no matter what you believe, if you say, I, 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 serve, you know, I serve money, I don't serve God. Okay, there are certain things, no matter what you believe, that we all spend our money on. And I made a quick list. You could say things like housing, transportation, food, debt, vacation, children, hobbies. Whether you're a Christian or you don't call yourself a Christian, wherever you're at, there's certain things we all spend our money on. But the argument here is that if you say you serve God, okay? So, hey, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. There should be extra things on your list where your money goes that would not be true of someone who doesn't say that they serve God. That there should be kingdom purposes where your money would go. Now, today you can think about that as, you know, money you give to the church, money you give to needy people, uh, any other ways that you use your privilege for the benefit of others. You say, this is kingdom stuff, this is not for me, and to the point where your CPA could look at you if they knew nothing else about you, and they go, oh, you must be a Christian because I'm seeing how much of your money goes outside of you, goes to other things. It would just be a very natural conclusion. And so the question Jesus might ask us is how shrewdly are you managing your money for the kingdom? Because the reality is for a lot of us, our money doesn't look any different than people who said that they don't follow Jesus. So we might say, oh yeah, no, I, I'm serving God. But Jesus might look at our finances and go, no, you're actually serving money just like these ancient Israelites were. You're saying one thing, but you have found a way to, to work it out to your favor and you're not actually managing it the way that your owner would want you to manage it. Now, let's play a little game to figure this out in our own life. I played a game with shoes last week, and it went well. and messed a bunch of you up, so let's, let's play another one. So here's the situation. You're gonna go to Vegas on vacation, and there's a show in Vegas that you really want to see. You've heard about this show. You're excited. It costs $100. You've got $200 bills in your wallet, okay? And so you decide, you know what? I wanna make sure that this show does not get sold out. I wanna get my ticket. I'm gonna get my ticket in the morning and that way I'll have it already saved for that night of. So you go to the ticket office, you buy your ticket, you put it in your wallet, you are so excited. Spend the rest of your day, you get to the show in the evening, you pull out your wallet and you realize you have lost your ticket. I can't believe you did that. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, I, I don't have a ticket now, how am I gonna do this? But then you realize you still have $100 bill left in your wallet. So here's the question. Would you buy another ticket? Now I want you to think of your answer in your head and, and it's a yes or no. There's not, no right answer here, uh, just a yes or no. Would you buy another ticket? You have $100, you, you lost your one, would you buy another ticket? Now here's the second question. 
If you did, how much did the show cost you? So mentally think that through. What's your answer to that? Okay, yes or no, and then a, a price amount on that. Okay, so lock that in. That's gonna be important, okay? Now let's rewind the scenario, and, and, and we'll do it this way, okay? You're, same deal, you're in Vegas, you wanna see a show, you have $200 bills, but you know that sometimes you can get a little bit loosey-goosey with your stuff, and so you're, you're worried about losing that ticket, so you're not gonna buy the ticket till you get to the show that night, because you know yourself. So you get to the show that night, you pull your wallet out, you're about to buy a ticket, and you realize you have lost one of your $100 bills. Can you believe that? And you're going, I cannot believe I lost this. Man, I, I, what is happening to me? So you, you have now you have a $100 bill in your wallet. You haven't bought a ticket yet, but you could. So here's the question for you now. After you lost it, would you buy a ticket? And uh, question number two, if you did, how much did the show cost you? Lock in your answers. Now here's the question, this is a show of hands. How many of you, when you compare situation one to situation two, both questions, how many of you changed either one of your answers from situation one to situation two? Raise your hand. Okay, a number of you. How many of you did it? Okay, maybe it's split. Here's the reality. Why does this feel different to most of us, right? And maybe you said yes in one situation, no in the other. And if we're honest, didn't the first scenario feel like you spent $200 on the ticket and the second one felt like you spent $100 on the ticket? But the reality is the outcome is exactly the same in both scenarios, but they feel different. They feel different to us, why? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you're in Vegas now, and you, you went to a show, you spent your money, and, and so now all you've got left is $5, because you've lost the rest, okay? You got $5 left, and you're gonna go play roulette until the $5 runs out. So you go into the table, you play roulette, and you begin the wildest string of luck in your life. And you are just killing it. I mean, you're making money, making money, making money. And you cannot believe that this one $5 investment that you made is now just stacking up and stacking up and stacking up. And eventually, you get to a million dollars. Way to go, great job. So you're sitting there and you're going, I've never seen this many chips in my life. You cannot believe your luck. You're thinking, nothing can stop me now. And you bet it all on the next one. Some of you have been there before. <laughs> and you lose it all. And so you, you walk away from the table, you go back to your hotel room where your spouse is waiting for you. And your spouse asks you a very simple question. Hey, how much did you lose? Did you lose $5? Or did you lose a million dollars? How many of you lost $5? These are all the people who've been married for a while, right here, like, yep. Choose your answer wisely, right? How many of you lost a million dollars? These are the brave folks among us, right? Why does this feel different? Now the reality is, both of them were your money. You owned a million dollars, you owned five dollars, but the reality is, this felt like yours more than this did, because you never walked away with this, it never hit your bank account, it didn't really feel like yours the same way, even though logically, you could have cashed out at any point, you could have had them both. How do we explain this? 
This is something called mental accounting, and we do it all the time. It's how we justify in our minds the different compartments that we put our money and why we spend our money, in, often in illogical ways, because we're emotionally connected to what's going on. It's why if you get a raise at work or you get a bonus at work, you feel like that money needs to go toward you know, uh, your, your, your bills that month. But if you get money for a birthday, you don't feel obligated to spend that on your bills. You can go spend that on something fun. Why? The money's the same, but it's mental accounting. It's how we justify where our money goes and, and what it actually belongs to. Now here's what I would suggest, is that this dishonest manager was playing the game of mental accounting. Most of the Jews in that day were, which is why they found a way to charge interest to others off the record and not feel guilty about it. Oh, that's not really interest. See, mental accounting causes you to put things in compartments and go, no, that's, that's not interest if I charge it this way. It doesn't feel like interest to me, so therefore it can't be interest. And we can do the same thing today. We can make sure, I don't wanna feel guilty about this, so I'm gonna put it into different categories so that I don't feel any sense of guilt over what I'm doing. And in this story, the manager finally realizes what I have done is dishonest, and now I need to come to terms with it. And so he fixes it. He, he removes the issue, he solves it. And that is what he's being commended for. And this is the story that we need to wrestle with today. Because where are we when it comes to this story? One of the things that I believe is that managing money faithfully doesn't happen by accident. If you read a story like this, you're going, okay, Jesus wants us to be good managers. You're not gonna wake up one day and just discover you, you suddenly were a good manager of God's stuff. It is going to take intentional effort and thought for you to manage money faithfully. And you have to realize that mental accounting will severely mess you up. And it will cause you to do all kinds of weird, illogical things with your money and you will justify it. Let me show you how this plays out for most people in the church. See, traditionally the conversation has been, uh, if you need to you know, give money, you give 10% back to the church. It's called a tithe, okay? 10% back to the church. And if I give 10%, then the rest of the 90% is mine. Then I can do whatever I want with that 90%. And I've heard people go so far into this to go, hey, that 10% is cursed until you release it back to God. And then once you release it, the 90% is blessed with the understanding of to do whatever you want with. It's yours. And, and here's what I've realized. This is mental accounting. Right? This is a game that we play to go, this part's God, this part's mine, and that's assuming that you're giving at least 10% to the church. Now, what's going on here? Let me explain something. Uh, and this is by way of confession, uh, maybe a little bit shocking to you, but I feel a certain level of transparency is warranted. Just so you know, when it comes to my own giving to the church with my family, my wife and I do not tithe. Okay, got some of your attention. My wife and I do not tithe. Now, we began tithing many years ago to the church. And we began to realize that we were living on 90% of our income and it didn't hurt. I got really good at it. I figured out how to budget well, how to spend below the 90% that we you know, were living on and it was never a big deal. And I remember we made a lot less in those days but percentages are always the same. And so we were like, look, we can do this and it's not a thing at all. And here's what I realized. It wasn't producing a heart of generosity. I felt smug about it. Yep, check me out. Gave, gave my tithe, I can do whatever I want with the 90. I was playing mental accounting. And so what I have realized since then is, you know what? I'm going to give my money to the church, but I'm not stopping at 10%. I'm gonna increase it every single year. And we've been doing this for a number of years now, and we plan on continuing to do this until I die and hopefully someone looks at my accounts and goes, wow, that makes no sense. How did they get to that percentage? 
Because this is the only way I know how to keep myself from mental accounting. Because the moment I say, this is my percentage, then the rest feels like mine. And, and I start to do weird things with my money when it feels like mine. But if I say, look, it's all God's, and instead of asking, what should I give, I ask the question, what do I need to keep? What percentage do I need to keep for myself? And what I'm trying to do is make that number lower every single year. I'm gonna keep less of what I have every year because more of it is gonna go to the kingdom. And the reality is that all of us could do this and we could balance out this mental accounting that we do if you began to think of your stuff differently. If you began to think, oh, this is all God's. And so here's my challenge for you if you're going, okay, I'm listening to this, I'm, I'm processing this. Here's my challenge. Based on how you have handled worldly wealth, how should Jesus trust you with true riches? This is not a gotcha question, it's not a trick question, it's not designed to make you feel guilty or shameful. The reality is this is Jesus' logic. Uh, look, uh, there's worldly wealth that I'm, I'm giving you, but I've got true riches for you, but here's the reality, and if you've not listened to anything else, dial into this. Some of you, you want so badly for Jesus to show up in your life. You want so badly to experience God, for, for it to kick into high gear, and the reality is many of you are waiting. You're going, God, why are you not doing more? Why do I not experience you more? And Jesus is saying, well, because you're getting stopped on this. And if you can't handle this, what makes you think I'm gonna bring more to you? Now understand, I'm not talking prosperity gospel here. I'm not saying, hey, if you do this, you're gonna have so much more money coming your way. No, I'm saying the things that Jesus wants to do that require more faith are never gonna come your way if you can't be faithful with stuff. If you get hung up on stuff, this is mine, I'm not, and Jesus goes, you don't have a heart you know, of generosity. He's not going to even bring you into other conversations of what he could do. But the moment you decide, you know what, this is just stuff. I'm not gonna get stuck here. I'm gonna be faithful here. I wanna experience what's next. I wanna experience the bigger things that Jesus has for me. That has been the adventure of my life. And so if that's you and you're going, okay, pastor, I'm open to this. I wanna see what this feels like. I'm gonna give you a challenge to do two things this week. And the reality is most of you won't do this. And it's gonna take a little bit of work and you're like, ah, I'm not interested in it. But if you will, I believe you'll begin to see how you're gonna move from stuff to a whole bigger conversation that Jesus wants to have with you. So here's my two challenges. Number one, find out what percentage you are actually giving to kingdom purposes. That being, you know, what do you give to ALC? What do you give to people in need around you? What do you give to organizations you support? Now, actually find out what the percentage is. Most people I ask do not know their percentage. Just a simple thing I've realized. And so you have an idea in your mind, oh, I, I probably give like, uh, like, like 40%, I mean, probably. But you do the math and you realize you don't give what you think you give. And most of us, what we do is we tip. I tip a little bit to the church, I tip a little bit to that organization, I tip a little bit there, and we feel really good about it. But if you put your numbers out and you go, okay, this is what I actually make, that's what I gave, you realize that percentage may not be what you thought it was. And I wanna encourage you, do the work. This is gonna take a little bit of work. Do the work and figure out what is your actual percentage. Now, I don't think there's a magic number you've gotta hit. And again, people ask me, is it you know, net or gross or before taxes, after taxes? Look, the point is, Find out just where you're at and just have a starting point of, oh, this is where I'm at. And some of you are like, Pastor, I know exactly where I'm at. It's zero. I can tell you right now what percentage I'm at. I don't give money away. It's at zero. Now, here's my challenge. If you begin by knowing, okay, this is your percentage. Here's number two. Find a way to increase your percentage moving forward. 
Begin asking the question, how much do I need to keep of what has been entrusted to me? And this is the only way I know to develop a heart of generosity. The moment you say, this is my percentage and I'm locking it in, you, you, you lose the conversation. But the moment you go, hey, next year, I wanna trust God more than I did this year. Next year, I wanna be more generous than I was this year. And wherever you start, if you commit to that, you will be amazed how you're gonna experience Jesus in your life. You'll be amazed at how the grip that worldly things, worldly riches has on you begins to loosen. Once you say, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna start giving more and more away. And for some of you, all you need to do is go zero to something, right? Zero to something. I'm not even gonna tell you it has to be 10% to start with. I'm just gonna say, pray about a number, a percentage, and start there, and then commit yourself to go, God, I'm gonna engage in a conversation with you every year, and we're gonna increase it. And pray about what percentage that should be. But engage in a conversation with God. Watch how God shows up, how God will begin to change your heart. And when you prove faithful with worldly riches, God begins to go, oh, I got some bigger things I wanna try with you. I got some things that is gonna be advanced level stuff, but, but you've shown me that you can handle worldly wealth. Let me close with this idea. You know what I've never met? I've never met a generous person who's grumpy. I've never met them. I meet generous people, and there's plenty in our church, who are incredibly joyful. See, when you, when you get into giving like this, it's not shame-based, it's not guilt-based, it's not obligation-based, it's joy-based. When you begin to realize, I have so much that God has entrusted to me, and he's looking to see what I'm gonna do with it. When I realize this is just stuff, and the relationship between me and God is what God is really worried about and God is really concerned about, then all of a sudden it becomes so easy. And here's how I tell you. The hardest thing for my wife and I was the first 10% we ever started giving to the church. That was the hardest. From that point on, every year we increase it, it is such an easy conversation now because we have already seen the faithfulness of God. We have already seen what this does to us and how good this is for my heart, how it helps me balance against mental accounting. And I would pray the same thing for each of you, that when we learn to release the control of worldly wealth, this is just stuff, and we learn to use it for the kingdom, God begins to enter in to a whole nother conversation. Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, we invite you to challenge us, to move us, to prompt us, to help us think beyond what maybe we have been thinking. And for those who have never given yet, have never trusted you, God, I pray that this will be the beginning of that, the beginning of trusting you, of learning to release some of what we have to the kingdom and watching how stuff that we have to manage can change people's lives when we surrender it, when we give it for your, your, your purposes. And God, for those of us that may be tipping, I, I pray that you would challenge us to see what could be, to, to, to see what might be next if we were to commit this conversation to you, to, to continuing this conversation. And for those who have been generous and allow so much ministry to happen, who are, are literally changing our communities, God, just pray you continue to fill them with joy as they see how worldly stuff can have such lasting value when it's surrendered to you. And so God, as your church, wherever we are gathered, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would realize this is about us and you and how much we trust you, and that we would be faithful with little so that you can bring the much that you have next for us 
and we can experience you in that way. So God, help us to trust you, help us to grow in our faith, to grow in our generosity, and to see you in ever new ways. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.